I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hey everybody, it's Tim. Welcome back to Listening on Purpose. So glad you're here. Uh, I cannot wait to get into this episode. This week we have the amazing, the one and only Seth Godin as a guest, and I was so thrilled that he agreed to come on the show and have a conversation with me. I love the way Seth thinks. He's a paradigm buster. He just has this way of looking at something and shifting it so you can really see it in a different light and see possibility there. And, uh, you know, he's written 20, 21 best-selling books, uh, and it's just incredible. And we get into a wide variety of things in this conversation, including doing work that matters and having the greatest impact you can. And it's all really amazing because it kind of funnels down the end to how to create a movement and change, which is super important and one of the things that we're here to do. Without further ado, here's Seth Godin. Thanks for being here. I just want to start today by thanking you, not just for being here, but for, you know, for the stand that you take for people. I am grateful for your podcast. I know how hard it is to show up on the regular to do that and also bring life to music the way you do. It's a pleasure to know you. Hmm. Thank you. I love the latest book that you authored, The Practice. I found it useful and impactful for me as an artist, but also as someone who's thinking increasingly about impact. I'm curious how you quantify impact in your life and in your work. I have to confess that until you asked me that question, it didn't really occur to me to think about it. I think that uh, we live in this world where it is tempting because of the way the long tail has exposed so many people who are doing work on social media to benchmark our lives, to say, well, I don't have the fan base of this person and the haircut of this person and the uh, money of this person. And so you can easily paint yourself into a corner of mm. not mattering. And for me, the goal of our precious days is to do work that matters with and for people who care. And the absolute value of what we do isn't necessarily important. That what matters is that you had the choice today to put in effort to expose yourself to fear and resistance, to uh, care enough to make a difference. And whether that impact was one person whose day got better for 15 minutes or a million people who figured out how to feed their families better, I don't think we need to compare. I just think we need to gauge what we did compared to what we could have done. Hmm. So would it be fair to say that in that sense you're measuring inputs rather than outputs? Well, I'm really wary of false proxies. And false proxies are a big part of my new book, which is called The Song of Significance. And what we do with false proxies is we measure the things that are easy instead of the things that are important. And so to pick social media again, your friends on social media aren't really your friends and the people who say they like you don't really like you. Those are just proxies for an easily measured number. And people mm -hmm. still get uptight about that because there's someone else 
who has a bigger number than they do. And I think that what we need to come to grips with is that the number of places where we can show up to matter is really significant. And right. why don't we pick one and not worry about the easy false proxies instead? Got it. What I'm thinking about now in life and making an impact is creating more listening in the world. And really, I've done that for a long time in the concert hall, in the opera house, and now wanting to do it outside. And I'm troubled looking at society and as a father. And so one of the things that I love about your work and your interaction with people is it's clear that you come from a place uh, I worked with a coach who would, he would call it, you know, listening to someone great or listening someone great, right? And sort of creating this space of listening to them where a lot of times in interviews you are, you are hearing something about someone or for someone that they are not. How do you get to that place as a, as a listener when you're interacting with people? Before we... Uh, connected. I was thinking about my friend Ben Zander. I was thinking about mm. your work and and the word conductor, because that's a word from electrical engineering, conducting right. something from one place to another. It is not. They don't call the job the dominator, and they don't call <laughs> the job the director. They call right. the job the conductor, mm. and conducting brings the essence of something from one place to another, and. You know, the interview you did with the authors of the book Golden was really terrific in the way mm. it helped us think about listening as a choice, silence as an opportunity. Ooh, and yeah. it's very easy to get seduced by the profit-seeking, short-term, breaking news, media-industrial complex narrative to think that society is going to hell in a handbasket. When in fact... We live in a world that is safer, kinder, and more connected than any world in the history of mankind. Hmm. Now, there are significant problems, the climate being uh, the most urgent long-term right. one. But just because we are surrounded by professional wrestling narrators doesn't mean that the world is filled with professional wrestlers. Hmm. And I think that the way to counter it is not to wring our hands about the professional wrestlers. It's instead to create our own circles and movements and tribes and villages of expectations of culture, of what mm. things are like around here. Mm. And, you know, the fact is I can walk down the street of almost any city in the world and not worry about getting mugged statistically. The right. uh, media would like me to think that there are all these unsafe places, mm -hmm. but in fact, that's just an easy way to sell clicks. So right. when we think about the magic of raising a kid, it's arming them with possibility, with mm -hmm. believing that they can actually build something worth building and not worrying so much about what's happening in some other media capital. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I was giving a talk um, in December and, and it really struck me when I started thinking about it, how all of these big companies make more money when we agree less. And that's a little bit of a frightening predicament that we're in 
Well, it's interesting though. Sorry to interrupt, but the number of companies that that make money from that is actually very tiny, and the amount of money they make is very tiny. Twitter has mm-hmm. never made a penny ever. That right. the giant multinationals, the one thousand biggest companies on this planet, hate war and division. It's bad for business, and it's been one of the single best side effects of the industrial economy is it kept mm. human beings from destroying each other because big business doesn't want it to happen. So there are a dozen media companies that are struggling to make profits, but that's not keeping them from destroying our peace of mind. Right, right. And, and they will do that readily. You and I had exchanged an email or two before, and then I heard you on Tim Ferriss's podcast talking about magic and the magic that happens or doesn't happen in a performance. And it really, it really resonated with me because as a performer, and one of the reasons I'm so passionate about live performance and its transformational power is because we, we create moments that never existed before and will never exist again. And it's all part of the energy of the people there. And, you know, we could play the first phrase of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and then go back, stop and play it again, and it would be completely different. And it's such a fascinating thing because it also involves the audience and their commitment to it. And it involves the fact that everyone there is taking risk. You know, performing is a risky business. I can tell you just from some of the performances I conducted last week, things are not always going to go perfectly. And so I think that's one of the things that's such a gift about live performance. But I would love to hear you talk more about the idea of magic, how that's created or how it's missed in interactions both big and small, whether that's interpersonal or on a, in a you know, stadium. So I've spoken at Juilliard a couple times. Usually the uh, class ended in tears. So that's why after <laughs> the third time they said, we're not sure we can have the students <laughs> deal with this emotional trauma. Because from the time they're three years old, anyone who's made it to the master's program at Juilliard via Carnegie Hall in New York has been indoctrinated into playing the notes as written. Mm. And Mm -hmm. in fact, they stopped their large-scale guest speaking program because they found that students were going to the practice room instead of going to listen to Emmanuel Axe. And if you believe that you can practice your way into a job as first violin, you're mistaken because there is a surplus of people who can play the notes as written. And the metaphor is obvious in that it's not just violinists. It's every single job, every single vocation that we train people to do. And Mm -hmm. so most musical performances have no magic whatsoever Mm -hmm. because people are so afraid of the risk that they are simply playing the notes as written. So Mm -hmm. back to Ben Zander, uh, he taking work from other scholars, figured out that Beethoven's Fifth has been performed way too slowly for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so he gets up there uh, with his orchestra and and the audience is gasping because they're Mm -hmm. not playing it the regular way. Well, in fact, he is playing it the way it's written. It's as no one else had for a long time. And in that moment, which I'm referring to as a liminal state, it's between here and there, Mm-hmm. The Lyman is the part of the doorway you step over to get from here to there. That's the difference between live music and recorded music. 
is mm. there's alignment, there's a liminal state, there's what's going to happen next. And <clears throat> I don't remember the details of talking to Tim, but I do know that there's always a deck of cards by my side. And I am terrible at the mechanics of magic, but I'm pretty good at creating magic when I'm doing a magic trick because mm. I do it differently and poorly every time. And there's always this moment of, well, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> and then when it does, it's even thrilling for me, right? Sure. And right. we don't, you know, I hope you will get your daughter a t-shirt that says on it, this might not work. Because mm. what better slogan can there be for someone coming up today? Because guess what? If we want mediocre work, chat GPT, we'll do it for three, for free, instantly. Sure. If we want something beyond that, we have to do something that might not work. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned artificial intelligence. This is something that I've been reading up on and really trying to learn more about and the idea of, you know, what separates humans from from AI, right? And and what what is in the end when when these things are even smarter and more powerful, what what is it that separates us? Is it the fact that we are able to be creative in a way. Do you have thoughts about in the future w why humans over computers? Um, so I grew up reading science fiction, taught science fiction when I was in high school. Uh, and when I went to Stanford, I actually uh, audited a PhD artificial intelligence course in 1983 uh, wow. with one of the people who ended up becoming a pioneer in all of this. And I have really strong feelings about this, which is A... Artificial intelligence is everything a computer can't do yet. So we said, well, once computers can play chess, then they'll be intelligent. And we just keep moving the bar. Mm. Um, but the other half of it is, I think the appearance of intelligence is a placebo. That we, just like we can take a medicine and imagine it will make us better, and it does. We can interact with something that wasn't made by a person, but come to the conclusion that there was some consciousness behind it. And we, mm -hmm. you know, anthropomorphize cars and computers all the time. So what makes us human might be that if you cut us open, we bleed. But the work that GPT-3 can already do, if it's been edited just a little bit, is as good as a 10th grader writing an essay. So right. it's inevitable to me that we're going to stop saying artificial intelligence is everything a computer can't do yet. And we're going to start saying, Computers are intelligent. They may not have consciousness, but they're going to be able to pretend they do. That's not going to be right. very hard either. And right. so we need to get over it and say, okay, fine. That's an interesting conversation to have, but it's not important. That's interesting to think about that way. But I've also been thinking about it in the sense of, is risk one of the defining factors, right? That a computer is meant, it will never make the same mistake twice, right? Or that's how it's teaching itself. And is that something, I mean, do our, does our ability as humans to take risk and our willingness to do that and be vulnerable? There's a difference between real risk and apparent risk, right? People do things all the time. They think is risk. They think are risky, but they aren't. And at the mm -hmm. same time, you know, we're going to be destroyed by an asteroid or the planet's going to warm to the point. I mean, these are certainties, but we're not worried about them. So this is about the story we tell ourselves of risk. You're not actually mm -hmm. asking about risk, risk. And we can teach a computer to tell itself a story about risk. We can teach a computer to 
do all sorts of things that will look like it is aware of risk. So I'm not sure that that's going to be the threshold. Hmm. Interesting. I would not intended on talking about AI with you at all today. It's just nowhere in all of these notes that I have. So, But I, I appreciate that little side note. Hey, everybody. It's Tim. My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you. And we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at Moti Myers. That's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S. And always happy to hear from you via email. That's Timothy at TimothyMyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. I really want to talk about The Carbon Almanac, which is a book that you recently helped put together. It's an incredible resource on climate change and with more than 300 people from around the world contributing to this. Just to set the conversation for the listener, I want to just read a really short excerpt from your foreword where you say, at the same time, this is a book about a different sort of energy, the energy of hope and connection, the ability that humans have to solve problems and to make things better. It's not too late to make a difference. And I really, really want everyone to go out and buy this book. So could you please just walk us through a little bit what the book is, how it came together, and your why for taking on this massive project. Massive it is. Uh, 97,000 words. I'm a volunteer. Every one of the people I worked with is a volunteer. We wrote mm. the whole thing in five months. Every page is footnoted. We just won uh, a worldwide award for data literacy in the way our graphs were presented. And it was a bestseller in the United States, in England, in Italy. It's been uh, number one in the Netherlands, et cetera, et cetera. I decided to organize it because I felt stupid. I hmm. believe that there are very, very profitable companies that want us to feel stupid. Carbon Footprint was invented by British Petroleum to make us feel like hypocrites. And the plastics industry invented plastics recycling, even though it doesn't work. Uh, and if we feel stupid, we don't talk about it. If we feel hmm. stupid, we're afraid to listen. If we feel stupid, we are paralyzed. And I thought, if I feel stupid, I bet other people do too. And so the purpose of the almanac is just to say, it's complicated, but it's not that hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And you can open it to any page you want, browse it for five minutes and put it down. But what we really want you to do is buy one for somebody else and have a conversation. Buy one for five people at work and talk about it. Just one page. Um, because if we talk about it, like most problems, it'll get better. And if we don't talk about it, it'll get worse. I appreciate your desire for it to be the catalyst for conversation. How do you begin these conversations with someone who is, who you might know is completely on the other side of the coin from you? I think it's really important to point out that there aren't two sides to the coin and it is not a political issue. The weather is not political. If it's raining out, it's raining out and no one disagrees about the fact that it's raining out. What has happened is 10%, 15% of the country has been seduced by a very, very small group of billionaires into 
believing it's a political issue, but it's not. There are real political issues. That is what we do when we come together as a community and talk about things. Now, are there political issues about what to do now? For sure there are. That's why we need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But um, the good news is we don't need to persuade the 10% who are unalterably opposed to any of the facts about what's happening. Just walk away. What we need to do is figure out how to get the people who do want to have a conversation to talk about it. So I like to give the example of gas-powered, gas-powered leaf blowers. Now, if we got rid of all the gas-powered leaf blowers in the world, it wouldn't solve our problem. However, one hour of one leaf blower is like driving a car from New York to L.A. That's mm. its impact on the environment. And there are electric leaf blowers that cost the same amount as gas leaf blowers. So we mm-hmm. have a solution. They're quieter. They're safer. They're better for your neighbors. So what I want to understand is if you live in a town where more than half the people care about this issue, why aren't leaf blowers against the law? Mm. Because if you just got 100 people in your town together, you could make leaf blowers, gas-powered leaf blowers, against the law. That is a totally different step forward than you should recycle your plastic. Because A, Mm. recycling plastic doesn't work, it's fraud. And B... That's an individual action, but we have a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. And so the way to talk about these things is not to say we're all going to die, because we are all going to die. The way to talk about these things is to find one specific thing that we can have a conversation about that starts to move things forward. Mm -hmm. And then there will be a second thing, and then there will be a third thing. And incrementally, we can make a really big impact but we're not going to do it by each trying to privately be less of a villain than we are today. Something that I've heard you say before is, you know, being clear when you're defining something as a systems problem. And I know when you're staring at a system like what exists now um, when it comes to climate and, and sort of protecting the status quo as it is, that feels that feels giant, right? And I think it's hard to feel as an individual. It's sort of like the political system, right? Is how do, how does how does one impact that in a in a positive way that that can make it begin to work for most people again? Um, yeah. And yeah, no, I I think systems problems are the most interesting and the juiciest ones. So let's go back to the symphony orchestra. Why don't symphony mm-hmm. orchestras have saxophones and didgeridoos in them? And we can look back to when the system of the symphony orchestra was invented, which Mm -hmm. instruments were available on those streets in Germany, which king was willing to underwrite something. So we are now doing something 400 years later because some king liked some instruments. And that led to certain pieces being written that called for those instruments and those pieces became part of the canon. So if you're going to want to be in an orchestra, don't learn the didgeridoo because there isn't any music written for the didgeridoo for orchestra. And so it won't, so you, that's a systems problem, right? Right. Well, the way you solve that problem is by commissioning some work for the didgeridoo. The way you solve that problem is by finding one orchestra, two orchestras, three orchestras who can satisfy some of their goals by shifting the canon a little bit. And so we're seeing the system 
of caste and racism slowly, way too slowly being changed because in certain little pockets, people are saying, not around here. We don't do it mm -hmm. like that anymore. And so it's so easy to, to, to wring your hands and, and say, no, it can't be fixed. But systems change all the time. They didn't used to have spicy food in India because the peppers came from somewhere else. But then they did because slowly the systems change because one chef, one cook, one uh, prince, and then one king shows up and says, yeah, we're going to do it this way. Pad Thai became the official dish of Thailand only 80 years ago because mm -hmm. the king wanted to find a food that would unite the country, right? So we can change systems. We just have to do it with intent a little bit at a time. Mm. I really appreciate you contextualizing that more closely to what I do uh, because it helps me see it a little bit differently and it reminds me of this project that we've launched at Austin Opera and that is our Spanish language programming initiative. And we've looked at you know, what's the future population of Austin, right? And it's overwhelmingly people of, you know, Spanish or Latin origin. And, and so we started thinking, okay, how do we, how do we program for them? And we started looking around, okay, what Spanish language operas, duh. But then we started looking, the canon's very small. And so we decided to tackle the pipeline. And so we are creating a residency um, for, Latin creatives to come um, and use our rehearsal studio, all of our resources and everything to create something. And we were actually having a conversation yesterday about how can we describe this in an application process with telling people what we're doing and getting people to apply, but getting out of the box of what a normal application process would encourage, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and and leaving it open-ended enough that there are things that could happen that we have no idea could even be possible at this point. Right. And that's a tricky conversation when you're trying to use a system, you know, another system to try and change a, a different one. Yeah. And it turns out the magic hook is status. Uh, mm. I write about status a lot in my book, This Is Marketing. When we think about let's say the opera, you know, why do New Yorkers, I can't speak for Texans, why do New Yorkers spend so much money building and attending the opera? Well, almost no one does. Who does? Right. The people who do are either people who grew up in a house where opera was important or people who are demonstrating their status in a very specific societal way by attending this event, which they may or may not understand. And so one of the challenges that classical music... Uh, organizations have had is the status of going to the symphony has gone down over time mm. Mm. because you know people like my parents went because they that's what their circle did but people like my circle don't go that often i have to go by myself because it's a different signaler right so when we say there's a pulitzer prize and certain people applaud the person who wins the pulitzer prize well what we end up with is more investigative journalism because editors want the status that comes from winning it. So when you show up in Austin and say, we're going to be granting this thing and this label to the person who wins this, and you show up with what the box looks like, people, some, will be attracted to wanting to be in that box with that spotlight. And the ones that you escalate will be seen by the others 
right? And the same thing will happen for who's in the audience, right? If you're mm-hmm. trying to program for the person who's going to Joe T. Garcia's the night before, it's going to be a different kind of audience. That you, you, you get the idea? So you just mm-hmm. got to think about how do you create the conditions for people who care about this sort of thing to do the sort of thing that will create a new system. Mm-hmm. And identifying what those people care about, right? Right. If we're sort of thinking about Clay Christensen's idea of jobs to be done, you know, what what job are those people hiring you or your organization or exactly. your product or art form to do? Circling that back around to the carbon almanac and climate, you know, this morning I was reflecting on something else that you put wrote in the foreword, and that is quote, and the power nearly unlimited that comes from coordinated action and community reinforcement. Connected, we are far more effective than each of us acting individually. I completely agree. And a lot of our conversation today has been centered around the magic and the miracle of that kind of interaction. So that idea gives me a whole lot of hope. My question is two parts. How do we create movement around these important things as quickly as possible and you know these conversations that must happen and then the second part of the question is how do we scale that well let me put it back to you and say what would happen if you were trying to do it as slowly as possible without scale but with deliberate intent and a focus on doing the work that you cared about because Sometimes we use speed and scale as a shortcut when it's actually the longest possible way. Mm. That if you can create, you know, so I think we can argue probably successfully that John Adams has done more to reinvigorate certain segments of classical music than most people in the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Not because he was focusing on speed or scale, But instead, he said, if I could just make one opera that would turn the heads of people who don't think they like opera, just one, would that be enough for now? And I think that getting back to that, to this blog post isn't going to change the world, but if I could make this blog post the best blog post I could make it, it'll help, right? Mm. Drip by drip. When we wrote the Almanac, we coined a term called page 19 thinking. Page 19 thinking says, there's going to be page 19 in the almanac. We're sure of that. We're also sure there isn't one person on this team who has the skill and the authority to do copywriting, editing, layout, design, graphic design, information design, footnoting, and fact-checking for page 19. Mm. Nobody. And yet there's going to be a page 19. So what should we do about that? (laughs) Well, the answer is create a culture where every single person makes page 19 a little better. If each person contributes what they can to page 19, including making page 19 better, page 19 will be fine. And if you look at this and blink and say, it's too daunting, then you won't Mm. contribute to page 19. And, you know, so what I've said to people about the work from the Almanac is, what would it take for there to be Meatless Monday at your local high school? How many people would have to get together for you to organize Meatless Monday? Start with that. That's page 19. Yeah. 
I love this idea about contribution, and this relates a lot to the practice, your book there, of, you know, just shipping creative work, right? And that, that the craft is, is enough. And I think for me, I get caught up in this idea of scale and that to really have impact, it has to be done broadly and with as many people as possible. Certainly, it's talked a lot about at Harvard Business School. Um, 99% of the people in the United States have never purchased one of my books. Hmm. Fine with me. 1% yeah. market share. Fine. Right? You can write 20 bestsellers in a row, and 99% of the people will never buy one of them. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good reminder. Thank you. I definitely want to get to my 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 key question that's the driver for this whole thing and that is what would the world look like with more listening you know one of the things i took away from uh the golden authors is that if we leave space hmm. that is also a form of listening even though there's nobody talking hmm. and when you talk about listening, part of it is having the empathy to imagine that other people don't know what you know, don't want what you want, don't see what you see, and that's okay. This mm -hmm. idea of sonder of points of view. But I think the big thing for me is withholding categorization. Hmm. Sitting with what we're hearing long enough to make a new decision based on new information as opposed to in our click, click, click world saying, nope, yes, nope, yes, nope, yes. Finding the liminal gray areas, figuring out where change is possible. And I think all of that comes down to undoing the indoctrination of being a cog in the system and realizing we have way more agency than we think and way more flexibility than we think and way more power than we think if we are willing to connect and so i was a techno optimist at the beginning of the internet i forgot to bet on the fact that loud forces in search of money would corrupt it but i'm mm. back to being more optimistic as it has broken into smaller chunks because i think it's easy to be skeptical about humanity as a whole but easy to be optimistic about humans in particular and if we can come back to there is a person across the table from you and they mean well and so do you, mm -hmm. maybe we can figure out what to do with that. Amazing. If there were one thing you could tell everyone in some format, what would it be? <laughs> I can tell you mine if you want to think about it for a second. Yeah, tell me yours. It'll give me a second. Mine is you are enough. Because I think that it can, it can be a little cliche, but accepting that where you are now is enough is a path forward. So I guess what I would say is because you are enough, it's time to go do something about it. Hmm. That when we make a ruckus to change the systems we would like to see changed, then we are demonstrating our enoughness. Hmm. Beautifully said. I really appreciate your time and 
I'm just so happy to talk to you. And I've learned that I can't listen to an interview with you while driving because there are too many things that I need to stop and take note of. So (laughs) I just want to say thank you for your contributions and your, your books and just your generosity and spirit and for being on the show. And is there anything else you'd like for our audience to hear? I will just tell you one tiny personal story. Uh, my wife loves to sleep in the car when I'm driving. And if I was going to write a murder mystery, it would include the following true story, which is that she cannot listen to my podcast because the first time she tried to listen to it while she was driving, she thought I was driving because she could hear my voice and she started falling asleep at the wheel. And like, it would just be such a great Agatha Christie modern update to say that the murderer created a podcast just to hypnotize, whatever, whatever. Anyway, thank you for the music you make, for the conducting you do, the leadership in all its forms. What a pleasure. Thank you for thank taking you, the Thank you, Seth. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose. Mm-hmm.